0: Welcome, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana.
1: And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Today, we're going to be discussing perspectives on the future of PT practice and our vision. Now, this topic is just going to kind of be a hodgepodge of how we see the profession right now, what we see for the profession going forward, and then kind of setting up what we're going to be diving deeper into with Season 2 and This episode will be the last episode of season one. We really wanted to set up our practice paradigm, really dive into a few different topics. But next season, we're really going to look at our treatment paradigm for specific joint specific regions and diving deeper into what research really sets up our paradigm for practice. Mike, where do you see the physical therapy profession right now? I feel like our salaries and our respect really just haven't caught up to the quality of education that we're getting. So, where do you see the profession going in the next 10, 15 years?
1: I think it's tough because in, unless our role within the healthcare system adapts um, and we end up getting more responsibility, it's hard to make some of those some of those salary jump questions. It's easy to say I I, I want more, um, but I think it a, a lot of it's going to come down to kind of advocating for for what our benefit is within within the healthcare system.
0: Why do you feel that? As a profession, you know the DPT's been around for probably 10 plus years and now it started in the early 2000s. Why do you feel like the respect for the profession hasn't caught up or why our actual role and responsibility hasn't expanded since we've increased the knowledge the or the base of our knowledge and the education that we've actually acquired as a profession? Why do you feel like, the respect is still not there and the salary still is not there. What can we do differently and, and why are we kind of stuck in this in this rut as far as really positioning ourselves to be on the same level as let's say a chiropractor or a uh, nurse practitioner?
1: I think one thing physical therapy just needs to do better is I think one, just advocate for ourselves. If, if our primary reimbursement is always going to be from the insurance companies and Medicare and and along those lines versus, you know, more of a more of a, a cash based system, uh, we need to make a push for getting paid. It doesn't have to necessarily be the standard fee for service that, you know, we're we've traditionally seen, but something where where our, our pay reflects the amount of time and effort that we put into to learning about this field and, and and how to help our patients. There There's no reason that us as, you know, primary care providers shouldn't have the same level of pay as someone like a physician's assistant who are incredibly valuable for the healthcare field. Their degree is a master's degree and they're generally working under a physician, whereas we are just like them. We we can be that first person that a patient sees. We should be paid in a way that makes it so that the healthcare system recognizes us as someone who can recognize potentially life-threatening conditions. And I don't think that a physical therapists will fully across the board make that mental switch until we, until we start getting paid as such.
0: One thing that I think is important that I think will actually elevate our role, there's got to be some huge leaps as far as the quality that we provide in the current settings that we're in, as far as outpatient or even an in inpatient. The, the huge leap that I think we can make is really establishing ourselves within primary care practices, As far as being there on site to triage musculoskeletal injuries, I think right now in the United States, there's an underwhelming amount of primary care providers. I know us traveling, trying to get in with a PCP, three, four weeks to even get in and see someone that you're not established with. So finding a way to relieve that burden from the primary care providers, I think they said 40% of people experience low back pain at some point in their life. And that other than the common cold or the flu or some type of general sickness, most individuals go in to see their primary care for some type of musculoskeletal pain. So I think having physical therapy on site just to kind of triage these people for things that they could potentially respond to with PT intervention is a great way to put ourselves in a position where we can have those dialogues with physicians really elevate ourselves. in the second they realize that we can have intelligent conversations regarding what patients are experiencing, what we would do for them. It would really shed a lot of light on our value. Now, I think getting ourselves in that position is very challenging because right now we have two very different generations of PTs. I think we have the PTs from the 90s and 2000s who are are all great clinicians for what we've been built to do as far as just simple rehabilitation. I don't even want to simplify it and say simple rehabilitation, but just rehabilitation and less triage us as physical therapists, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, being able to refer back to the physician when we think they're not appropriate, being able to justify why we refer back, having those intelligent conversations, being concise with our objective measures and getting straight to the point and getting these people back to the right place is going to be the first step in positioning ourselves to eventually fill that role. I think a lot of clinicians are hesitant to contact the physician and really say, hey, I don't think they're appropriate. They might write out a six-week plan of care and then say, well, your plan of care is over. Go back to the doctor, see what he says, when that could have happened at two weeks if you felt like they weren't going to respond.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you brought up a really good point there with referring back to physicians. A huge part of our additional education is knowing when things are out of our wheelhouse. If we have this huge breadth of, of medical knowledge, part of that is, you know, what can we do as physical therapists, but also part of it is recognizing some of the things that are, you know, more outside of our scope and and would benefit from more additional medical intervention. And I think probably the most important part about what you said is not going, "Uh, I don't know when you send them back to the physician, but actually having concise objective measures, exactly like what you said. And that opens up a very respectful dialogue um, where that where that physician then looks at you as a healthcare provider, as opposed to kind of a you know meathead musculoskeletal physical therapist, which is probably for for many of many of the physicians what their what well, most of their experience has been. So I think it is whenever we have those potential situations um, where we have someone that that's a little bit outside of our scope or might need some additional medical management, make sure that when you're discussing things with the physician, it is with good objective data.
0: Kind of going off what you said, one of the most anxiety-provoking things for us as clinicians is is kind of dealing with that uncertainty in practice. Every day our patients are going to walk in. You don't know if they're going to be better or worse, and we've all evaluated that patient where we're like, we don't know what the heck is going on with them. We're just going to try to do some general exercise, gradually load them, you know, use our stage-based irritability approach. Hopefully they respond, but you just don't have a good feeling about it, and every time they come in, you're just kind of dreading it because you know, they're going to be hurting and, and whatever you're doing is not working. I think dealing with that uncertainty is is difficult. And I'm going to quote one of our professors, who's actually a chiropractor, um, Dr. Schneider. He uh, told us to live with a certain level of uncertainty. So I think that's very important is to be able to accept that nothing in, in our practice is certain. There's so many variables outside of that that one hour session that we have with them. But I think really changing our mindset in regards to how we view these patients instead of dreading them we should get excited about them we need to view them as opportunities to demonstrate how important we are and if you feel like okay someone's not a responder someone's not going to get better with therapy instead of dreading seeing them dive a little bit deeper figure out why why do you feel like they're not going to get better with therapy is there not a musculoskeletal component to what they're presenting with is there something else going on is it psychological is it psychosocial is it systemic really dive deeper and figure out who you need to get that patient to to get them better. I think some of the patients that have been most grateful aren't the ones who had a musculoskeletal complaint and got better. They're the ones who had other issues. And I was able to recognize and say, you're not appropriate for me, but I'm going to get you to the right place and I'm going to get this solved for you. Because so many other clinicians have kicked that can down the road and they've just ended up at PT because they wanted to get them out of the office. So I think you're going to realize... That as you start to change your mindset with these patients and get them to the right providers, even if you saw them for two visits, they're going to remember you and they're going to be really grateful. Yeah.
1: So you brought up a really good point there in, in trying to find the right provider. Uh, have you run into any instances where maybe they're the initial physician that they saw you refer them back? You did everything you could. You sent them good reasoning for why you're sending them back. And 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 that physician just kind of says, eh, and just kind of kicks them back to you again. How do you how do you tend to handle that with that patient, and how do you kind of best advocate for them?
0: Right. So I think it depends who the referring provider is. I think it's a little bit more challenging if it's an ortho who's sending them to you for shoulder pain because they want to do conservative management before they do a surgery or something like that. Because the ortho is more of a specialized clinician. They've done their diagnostic process. They're pretty confident in what they're sending them to you for. So you might get a little bit more resistance from the actual orthos, but I'm fairly confident in our orthos. If they're sending us a patient for shoulder pain, they've gone through their diagnostic process. They've gone through their triage. Those patients usually don't fall into that category of people that I'm referring back. Sometimes maybe you're going to get an underlying uh, immunological component where maybe they've got some underlying autoimmune disorder that's contributing to their musculoskeletal complaint that's just been undiagnosed. Maybe you notice some ulnar deviation in their fingers and say, hey, have you been diagnosed with any type of rheumatological disorder or autoimmune dysfunction? And they say, no, I probably keep them on caseload and continue to treat them. But then I also try to set them up with a rheumatologist, get some blood work done, see if there's anything that's gone undiagnosed. And it could be both. Maybe they have shoulder pain and they also have an undiagnosed immunological disorder um, that maybe is not relevant, but they also need to get looked at. But I think the main ones that I usually look at this with are the ones that get referred by their PCP. They come in, they have a general ache pain, PCP just sends them to the PT. And then I say, okay, you're really not appropriate to be here. Um, you really need to go here or there. Or, you know, I think, you know, you have a little back pain. I think this could be coming from your kidneys or whatever it might be. And I think the PCP is usually a little bit more open to this. Again, you're right. There are going to be some physicians that are kind of going to say, this is what I want, just do it. And if you're not comfortable seeing a patient, it's your license. You can say, hey, I don't think you're appropriate. Send send them somewhere else. I mean, you might have other factors like management and economics of your business in, in that reasoning process. But again, even keeping those patients on caseload for a few weeks while they're figuring out where's the best place to go isn't the worst case scenario. You know, you're going to be exercising with them. It's not going to be bad for them, and it gives you a regular provider that monitors them on a weekly basis and how their symptoms change. I really don't get too much pushback if it's a PCP, and if it's like a neurology or a specialist like rheumatology, I feel like it's a little bit more difficult when it's a specialist. I don't know if that answered your question, but more of a ramble. But
1: I think it did for the most part. I think you know, amongst all the ramblings, like 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 both of us do, I think I think I think you got some good, some good thoughts in there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to have physicians that are just stuck in their mindset, but I think if you can be concise, you can be confident, you can have good reasoning, I think most physicians aren't as close-minded or mean as people tend to believe or think that they are. I think if anything, it's almost intimidation because you haven't built that comfort communicating with physicians and it just might be something that's anxiety provoking.
1: I think um, I think one thing that that's that's tough is when it's, you know, you're kind of having that conviction. Like this person really does need something else. Pretty much every darn physician out there is is doing it because they want to help their patients. Um, but they're in a much tougher model than than we are. A lot of times we complain about unreasonable caseloads in in especially the the orthopedic world. If you've ever shadowed in any sort of busy physician's office, sometimes they're seeing up to 60 patients a day is, is some of the higher numbers that, that I've seen. Um, and so if, if you expect these physicians treating 60 patients a day uh, to be able to have a perfect diagnosis for all of them, I don't know, maybe you have the best physician ever, but they're also humans. It's, it's, it's hard. So I think that that's something too, where it kind of ties back to that, to that previous point of do your best, but, Sometimes it might be kind of that tough discussion to have with the patient. Here's like really what I'm finding. If you don't feel that your physician has given you, you know, reasoning other than this, here, like I'm going to lay out kind of X, Y, and Z. Here's what I found. Here's why I think that, you know, you might benefit from someone else. Then I think it, it, it's appropriate at that point for us to recommend that they go and get a second opinion.
0: Right. And I think this is the ultimate opportunity for really demonstrating our knowledge and. Demonstrating not only to the patients, but demonstrating to physicians, hey, we're, we're not egotistical. We don't think we can fix everything. We're humble enough to know when to refer back, and we're educated enough to know and, and really rehabilitate these patients when it's appropriate. And I think demonstrating a combination of, of being humble, but being educated, and just communicating concisely and demonstrating our knowledge in these situations is a way to elevate our profession. And I think once the day comes when PCPs kind of reach their, their breaking point where there's just too many, too many people for them to manage, like you mentioned, they're under the same burdens that we are as far as high caseloads. I think this is going to allow us to really fill a gap that even PAs or nurse practitioners don't necessarily fill because they're going to be more on that. Is this systemic? Is it a cold? What's going on? Who, who are we referring to? but neither PAs nor nurse practitioners are really specialized with musculoskeletal diagnosis in the way that we are. Um, so I think we could really step into a triage role and a team-based approach in one of these multidisciplinary clinics. And, and that's a future that I hopefully see for us one day. In addition to seeing us in emergency rooms, I've seen too many individuals come out of the emergency room with a sling or an assistive device, and they weren't given any real education on how to use the device or how long to remain in the sling or or things like that. So I think there's there's those opportunities there in the triage realm. Mike, I know that you're starting your own business as far as being a cash-based physical therapist and you're obtaining your direct access license. So what types of things have you been thinking about in regards to how to grow your business and how are you going to leverage your direct access and then use that to expand?
1: I mean yeah so it's it's just kind of a, a little side project for me kind of treating treating cash a few times a week and I think what that allows you to do is really kind of pick pick a, a little niche that, that you really, that you really want to go after and so for me it's just kind of the active adult athlete I have you know a long history of playing Ultimate Frisbee at a pretty competitive level um, and so that's going to be a market that I try and that uh, I try and get in with. A huge difference there is your overhead is so minimal, uh, and so that just that makes it so you can establish reasonable rates, which I think is good. Uh, you can establish out-of-network benefits, and and so essentially, what patients do in in a cash model for for those that don't know, uh, the patient comes to you, you they pay your set visit rate depending on your state direct access license. They either you know do or do not need a script or need a script after a certain amount of days. And then what they can do is, if you have all of the appropriate documentation, they can then submit that to their insurance provider and potentially get reimbursed for what their out-of-network benefits are. But a big thing for how to grow that, I think, is is the marketing side of things. So many of us within that kind of outpatient, bigger company role don't really have much of a much of a role in this, uh, and a lot of that marketing is at um, you know physicians' offices or. They have whole marketing teams in order to, to to drive patients in the door versus on the side. It's, you know, much it's a much smaller scale. I don't need to be seeing, you know, between the whole practice, you know, 20 patients a day. My, my goal is about eight to 10 patients a week. Um, and so what that allows me to do is just kind of market directly to my customer. Um, and that way I, I can get the customer that I want in the door. So I'm not really sure if that kind of answered your question, but that's kind of, how So for, for me, it, it's, it's much different than a normal practice because it, it, it involves a lot of marketing and the business side of things yeah. and building that stuff. So, so it's much different that side.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important thing that you mentioned there. And then the one question that I wanted to delve deeper into a little bit more is talk to us about your marketing strategy, Mike. You said you're targeting this population. You're getting direct access. What are you specifically doing to get people to pay cash in, and what do your rates look like?
1: Yeah. So me, I have actually not started treating it. Um, so this is all kind of new for me. I'm learning as I go every day, trying to learn a little bit more about some sort of aspect of something.
0: It looks great uh, though. You have a good website and it looks very professional. So it looks
1: cool. Thanks, man. I have no idea what I'm doing. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> how we all start, man.
1: Uh, yeah. So uh, one thing that, I, that I've that uh, i been learning about is, is a lot of just kind of marketing directly to your patient. Probably the largest you know population that that i'll treat will probably end up being uh that kind of ultimate frisbee athlete i have some connections in that world now I, I like to think that i can i can do them justice just having played competitively for for 10 years um but other other things that i want to market to will uh eventually be kind of like your your recreational runner um, and then potentially do some concussion management. One issue that I think I'm going to run into with some of the concussion management is just the space on a man. It doesn't have a nice, good, quiet area in order to, to run through some of that stuff. So that might, might be a little bit tough. Um, but I plan on utilizing honestly uh, a good amount of Facebook. Uh, I think I think Facebook, and then maybe eventually Instagram. I don't have any Instagram stuff set up, uh, but I think Facebook will be probably my my primary way that I market just simple things like boosting posts um, do some do some organic reach with friends post in some some neighborhood groups that I'm involved in uh, and then eventually if things kind of you know develop a little bit more could even evolve to the point where you know I'm putting up a table at Different, you know, five Ks and races around the city. I live right, right in, right in Philadelphia. Uh, so there's always different events going on. Uh, you know, where eventually it, it could be something where I, you know, potentially sponsor a small little event or something like that, or volunteer for for different, uh, you know, lectures or screenings at gyms or and anything along those lines. Um, it, it's all kind of it's all kind of in the works right now. But I think primarily it's going to be Facebook to start.
0: Yeah, and. Something that I thought of is once you establish that population base and establish those patients, I think a very interesting thing to look at is sometimes our patients don't necessarily need a full plan of care. Once you kind of know their story, let's say you have a recreational runner, you know the type of races they run, and they really only need you for advice, maybe setting up some type of cash pay like telehealth phone call where they say they can give you a one-time consult and say, hey, Mike, I'm running this race, I'm getting some foot pain you know, this is my shoe situation. This is my uh, periodization situation. What do you think I should do? And maybe just giving like a a 30 minute phone call bill rate, just cash for a consultation. I don't know what the logistics of that would look like. I think if it's only education based, I think you could pull it off without too much legal complications. Have you uh, thought about this at all, Mike? Or I I see that you kind of want to.
1: I have. Yeah. So it's I looked into a few different like telehealth options. So it's it's kind of tough whenever you're like operating as a physical therapist because, and, and I'm, I, I might get corrected by this, by someone that listens to it. That's a little bit farther, farther into this whole thing than me. Um, but one thing that I, that I want people to have the option to do is submit to their insurance for potential reimbursement right. um, I think within that it'd be, it'd be difficult. Uh, if I'm going to have that as an option, then I would need to kind of go through a, you know, official telehealth, network or something like that that you know and, and do some sort of paid service i tried to find a free one and there's like one or two that had like free options but the call quality was like so low that it was essentially useless on the free option so that's probably just one of those things to get you in the door try to free trial and say oh, i want to do this and then you end up paying your 10 bucks a month so for me having it be my, my goal is minimal overhead with not that much need for treatment um, that's not something that i'm looking to do at this time, it is something that I thought about, but it, it ended up being a little bit more logistically confusing than I initially thought that it would be.
0: Yeah, and I'm thinking less of a formal telehealth. The, the avenue or the way that I got this idea was we have a physician at the skilled nursing facility that I'm currently at. And basically, he has a side hustle where nurse practitioners and PAs will call him for advice huh? on, on a patient. So they might say, we have this patient, we tried this medication. They're not responding he, we're gonna you know here's their their history, here's their presentation. you know what do you think we could change or do differently? And he takes like a 10 minute phone call and makes 50 bucks a pop. Yeah so he he's got a lot of revenue coming in from that side hustle. and I was thinking less on the side of doing a formal evaluation and a treatment telehealth. I'm thinking more of like your patient pays you 20 bucks for a 15 minute phone call where they say, hey, I'm training for this race, starting to get this pain creep creeping back in. This is how I've been, you know, this is my running volume. This is how I've been periodizing any advice. And then you might say like, okay, um, I think you should come in and see me for an evaluation or you might say, okay, it sounds like you're overtraining your periodization's all off. Try this, this, and this, and then follow up with me via email and let me know how you're doing.
1: If it's an existing patient, I think that I could see that being a potential option. Yeah. It's kind of tough because they have to understand that, Hey, this is off the cuff, you know, but this is my rate for advice.
0: Yeah. And I think having them maybe sign something that says like, you know, I I plan to follow up for just general patient education regarding this previous plan of care, you know, kind of signing something that removes legal obligation, but allows you to kind of pursue that without um, having as much legal risk have you considered, I know this has been talked about a lot in the PT world, is how do we set ourselves up kind of as regular providers? Like you'll see most patients say, oh, I've got my six month follow-up with my PCP or my six month checkup with my dentist. Do you think PTs can fill or fit into that six month follow-up checkup type of situation? Or do you think it's really not appropriate for us as physical therapists?
1: Uh, It's not that it's not appropriate I'm so uh, this is something I know that, that you feel that we should definitely be doing. I'm, I'm in the middle on it. Um, I think that it's like an awesome an awesome idea. I just, I'm, I'm sometimes struggling with the vision of how to make it work. And maybe that's because I haven't thought about it um, as much, especially since, since kind of shifting fields. Uh, and now I'm not necessarily with the people that I think would be good candidates for it. I'm with like your young active population and they're probably fine, but something for that, that older population. Um, I think that it's, I think it's something that should be implemented. Um, I just haven't really thought about the logistics of how to do it. And I, th- I think one thing is that your general public should be excited to do it. And so making sure that, that that's part of it, not just like we as PTs can help you, but, but really looking into kind of the, the, the general public and understanding what their goals are. And how we can how we can help them not, you know, us kind of puffing our chest out and saying, this is best for you, but kind of meeting them where where they're at.
0: I I agree. I think that's a, a very important gap and a very important point that we need to really fill before we can even have the discussion of having a physical therapist as a regular provider. I think you're right. I think we we at this point are puffing our chest and saying, call me Dr. Pastrana. And did you know the level of education that physical therapists have? So I think shoving something down someone's throat as far as saying, well, I think, you know, you need to come in and see us regularly and puffing our chest even more is going to be off-putting. I think trying to verbalize how great you are without actually delivering the results is no one, just no one wants a part of that. No one wants to hear that. They just want to get better. So I think we really need to elevate ourselves to a position where someone doesn't really care whether we have the doctor title they're going to say, wow, you're a physical therapist and having that title in itself is going to carry the respect that we want, not needing to really say, oh, well, I'm a doctor and I have this level of education, therefore you have to respect me. My main goal is that when someone hears physical therapist, that title itself carries the respect. And I think once we can have that, then we can delve deeper into having PT follow-ups. And once the value is there, I don't think we'll have to convince anyone. People will just realize the value. And that comes from setting up. That pain science paradigm, stress threshold, helping patients realize that the different level of conditioning throughout different points in time of their life, and even falling off their normal exercise program can influence generating a new pain experience when they do engage in spontaneous increases in activity volume.
1: I think um, I think one thing with that will also come down to you know what what what's the goal of it. Right, and so with the with your medical physical every year, it's just kind of quick checkup, quick system screen, make sure nothing is like right in your face wrong. But then there's kind of the other side of that, which is like your your dentist, where a lot of people go to their dentist every six months, they get their cleaning done, uh, and it's kind of a systematic process. You go in, they clean your teeth, the dentist comes in, make sure you don't have any cavities, and that's not required by anyone, but pretty much everyone knows that dental health is good and they do it because they they want their mouth to be healthy, right? And so it's a completely voluntary thing. No one's making you go to the dentist. Um, And I think we would fall probably more under that category. But in that, I think it needs to be a consistent and reproducible product. Uh, So you know what you're getting when you go to the dentist. You're not walking in the door saying, I don't know what the heck they're doing. So I think our health screens would have to be something similar, right? So we go through maybe a quick little blood pressure, something like that, and then a quick movement screen. They know what they're going to get. And then maybe a couple exercises, but but I think it has to be something that fairly consistently across the PT world is, has at least some sort of, um, you know, consistency to it. And I think that'll help get people in the door because they kind of know what they're going to get.
0: Right. And I think something that's going to really help promote this model is a vision for for my future practice and my future business is I I envision a physical therapy clinic within a larger gym setting that is a part of the clinic where let's say I discharge a patient or even it's someone who has limited visits. I can take them through the gym on their visits, show them the appropriate exercises that I want them to do. Then sometimes during the week, maybe they pay a cash rate for a kind of self-guided visit where they come in, they have access to the full gym, they pull their exercise program from a filing system or even the front desk hands it to them when they walk in just to keep everyone's program private. And then we have maybe one or two aides floating around. And that way, if a patient has a question, hey, I have this one on my exercise sheet, um, forgot how to do it, or can you watch me make sure I'm doing it right? The aide can kind of just observe and and make sure that they're doing it appropriately and then move on and kind of do their own self-guided program, either at discharge or even let's say you have an ACL that has a limited amount of visits, you may want to have them perform instead of having them come two or three times a week to do their strengthening when they're in week 24, you know, they can just keep coming to that gym program and then follow up with you. Um, once they hit those, those milestones in their rehab, what do you, any thoughts on that, Mike?
1: No, I think that that's awesome. I actually, um, am currently designing right now, um, like an ACL, uh, bundle package for athletes that play within the, uh, ultimate community in Philadelphia. And I'm working with, uh, a girl that's a strength and conditioning specialist. She plays for one of the top teams in the city, and she's also starting uh, PT school in the fall. Uh, and so the, the plan is start, obviously, with all PT, then gradually phase them out into uh, maybe one day a week of PT, and then one day a week working with her strength and conditioning. And then after that point, kind of discharge from PT for a little bit and have them run through a full strength and conditioning, you know, sports-specific program with her, and then come back to me for their return to sport testing. Uh, I think when you're working within, you know, your, your athletic population, it's really cool to have access to some sort of other fitness professional, because a lot of times it purely is, you know, you don't need anything other than increasing strength right now. And strength and conditioning coaches are probably better at that than we are. You're kind of puffing your chest out as a PT and you haven't done any sort of additional education into getting a strength and conditioning specialist certification or actually taking time to train clients. I think that you're probably lying to yourself. These people are really good at what they do um, where, where our strength is, is is taking the whole medical picture into the, into play. Um, but if the goal is they need quad strength, strength and conditioning special specialists can help you get there, freeze up a little bit of time on your schedule. Your patient probably will be getting an even better product because a lot of times they have better access to equipment than we do. If you have one that you work with maybe outside of your clinic that, that's, that's in a gym.
0: Well, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a good point that you brought up. I think as a single clinician, especially when you're really trying to expand your scope, expand your reach and really trying to help your community, I think extending yourself through other clinicians is going to be important because if you're a physical therapist, yeah, you could even have your CSCS, SCS, whatever it might be, and be really good at strength and conditioning, but you're only one person. So if you want to expand your reach, expand your clinic, you've got to get other individuals involved who you can teach your paradigm of practice and really help them understand what you're looking for, what you're doing. And like you said, even within that model that we talked about, having those aids floating, maybe even offering paid strength and conditioning services to hire a strength and conditioning coach. I mean, there's helicopter parents out there that are going to pay whatever it takes to help their child rehab from ACL and get back to football season and be the same as they were before. So I think having ancillary services like strain and conditioning or even self-guided therapy programs, keeping people within your facility for all their services, include dietetics if, if that's appropriate, is going to be important. And then it's going to help set us up as those routine providers, because they might be doing their self-guided program for three, four, five months. They could come to you and say, hey, I've been doing this, it's getting too easy or I need to change it up, or I'm going to switch activities to this. Can I see you for four visits to switch up this routine? I'll go back to my self-guided program. I think that's a, a nice vision where we can really create this bubble where we're working with a lot of different disciplines in the in the realm of exercise and movement, and then really setting up a paradigm and demonstrating the importance of having all of these providers work together. Yeah,
1: I agree 100% We all have our different strengths, and it's good to kind of Build off of each other versus try and keep everything. Is this is my patient, so I want to do everything with them,
0: right? And that's a hard part, is because as skilled therapists, we eventually get to the point where we like to do things our very certain and specific way. And I think the hardest part is to really build a team and be able to work with other individuals and other clinicians and even other providers like strength and conditioning and going loose on the reins a little bit and letting people do their thing that they're skilled at. I want to switch gears on the conversation here and get into a little bit about the future of healthcare in the U.S. and the implications for PT. I don't want to get too political What do you think we can do as physical therapists as far as the decreasing reimbursement, the effect that it has on quality? I think we all know that reimbursement's decreasing. We're getting, you know, 18 patients a day and the quality is just complete garbage. So we can't elevate ourselves at the same time that we're dealing with a very, very high volume caseload. It just doesn't work if you can't devote the time that you need to each patient. Um, I don't think every patient needs 100 percent one on one care one hour sessions. I think having two patients there, maybe two an hour, three an hour, depending if it's like a simple post-op and they know their their routine, depending how, it's just how you organize your schedule. I think three an hour can be reasonable if you know who's where and and what to do at what time. Um, But what can we do to really address this decreasing reimbursement and the effect on quality?
1: Yeah. If you want my honest opinion, I have no idea how the heck to do that. That is, that is so far out of my wheelhouse. It's not even funny, but I, but I think that if you're, if you're trying to get what you want, right, you need to have reasoning why it, it can't just be puffing our chest out and say because we know stuff, right. It has to be based on results. I think that as PT we're, we're positioned in, in a pretty good, pretty good spot. To do that because no matter what the alternative we're still probably going to be cheaper which is good overall so knowing that our interventions are fairly inexpensive should be should cost a little bit more probably but our, our interventions are, are are fairly inexpensive uh compared to a lot especially in the orthopedic world compared to the other stuff even in like, imaging we know how expensive mris are compared to pt we've all seen those you know infographics that Thousands of physical therapists have put up on their Instagram pages on you know how much better PT is than getting an MRI or getting surgery and all that stuff. Like, like we 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 know that. Um, so I think that leveraging that side of things, but making sure that we don't kind of back down on where where we settle. Like, look, you're still going to be saving money. We have people that are working their tails off trying to do what's best by these patients let's get these rates up a little bit you know figure out a a way to make that happen that's how i know i personally would approach it if i were doing any sort of the the negotiations but like i said i'm i'm not sure
0: I think it's challenging. I think what I saw when I was in California that has a huge state-run health insurance plan that's, I don't want to say it's similar to Medicare for all, but basically if you're uninsured, you get the the state-run health care plan. And seeing the reimbursement for that state-run health care plan and some of the changes that were happening as far as reimbursement, essentially for that insurance plan, you had to double book your patients or you wouldn't be profitable. So it made it really challenging to provide quality to these patients because you're double booking them. You have you have two patients coming at the same time. You're seeing probably three to four an hour just because that's the only way the business can stay profitable. So I think it's really challenging just because you're seeing this large group of of socio of poor socioeconomic individuals with the wealth disparity and the in the health gap. And we're even seeing this now with COVID is there's the poorest have the most comorbidities, they're being the most mismanaged. And then those are gonna be the ones that also reimbursed. First, the least because they have the, the state-run insurance. So I really find it challenging because the more that individuals get on this insurance plan that's kind of uh, given to everyone, it's going to kind of water down and dilute the care and also going to dilute our reimbursement. So I really don't know what the answer is. I think there's so many complexities within the healthcare system. I think one important topic that no one ever talks about even in the news or even in politics, is just kind of untouched, is talking about tort reform. The U.S. has the largest amount of frivolous lawsuits and litigation for healthcare providers. So I think when individuals look at the hospital or they look at doctors or whoever it might be and say, well, they're making all this money and they're charging me $30 for a medication administering device and it's a styrofoam cup. I think the hard part is to realize that part of that inflation and cost is also related to having to settle these lawsuits and some of them being frivolous. So I think really addressing the frivolous litigation within the United States is going to drive down the cost of healthcare. But I don't think it's something that anyone really addresses because if you look at Congress, whoever it might be, it's just it's lawyers. And it's a money-making machine for a lot of lawyers is to say, your doctor messed this up. We're going to go after them and we're going we're gonna to sue them. Um, and some of them are legitimate. I mean, if the doctor cuts off the wrong leg, do you really want to cap how much someone can get reimbursed for, for losing their leg? Um, but at the same time, you're going to have someone that's going to chase down their doctor for any little thing they did wrong. And that's going to inflate the cost of your medication administering device. So I think it's a very complicated web because on one end, you've got insurers, you've got hospitals trying to maximize profit. But then on the other end, you've got the general consumer who, if they're a bad-willed individual, are going to try to make a quick buck off the legal system in the United States.
1: Yeah. And, And, you know, Obviously, with the fact that we work within the insurance system, there's all sorts of regulations and compliance things with that 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 make it, you know, if if you miss one checkbox, you might not get paid for that visit. Um, And so knowing that companies have to have entire departments set up to make sure that billing and everything is is compliant within that system. And that creates a bunch of additional overhead for for the PT practice. And so you have one breadwinner supporting three, four different departments, and that makes it tough. And, and, and that's part of the reason why we're not able to see – as much money as we might like. It's because we're kind of operating within this insurance world that in innately is gonna have a lot of overhead. And so we're doing the work, pulling the money in. And it sounds kind of, you know, maybe a little selfish, maybe puffing chest out a little bit, but we're the only ones making money. Um and we gotta support all these all these other departments. And that and that's how business works. But I, I think part of it is, is figuring out ways where that overhead can be slightly minimized a little bit. I'm not sure how to do that, but
0: Yeah. And I think as far as relying on insurance for physical therapy, I just don't see it being sustainable in the long run. I think as things start to shift towards more of a single payer system and everyone is going to be under a similar insurance plan where things get diluted and watered down, I think it's just going to be more volume for less money. And I don't think it's sustainable from a practice standpoint. I think we need to do a better job of preventing these comorbidities and these health complications from developing to make the cases simpler. I think that's going to be a sociocultural change, which is insanely difficult. I think our generation might be a little bit more aware of the benefits in in exercise and fitness. I'm seeing a huge movement compared to at least when I remember when I was a kid in in the 90s um, regarding a lot of individuals being involved in an exercise program now. Um, And even the older generation is really starting to realize it and trying to make lifestyle changes. Um, But I think really getting PTs into the triage department and getting them into PCP clinics, identifying people early and getting them better when it's a simple problem versus a more complex problem is going to remove some of that burden. Fixing um, the legal system as far as frivolous litigation, I I haven't seen it talked about. I don't know if it's ever going to be addressed, but I think the only way we're going to make money is going to be to demonstrate value, create a legitimate cash based system where people see the value and are willing to pay out of pocket. And like you said, maybe they can get a little bit of money back from their insurer, but um, we got to really demonstrate the value and and people are going to be willing to pay, especially if they know if they're going to be spared a surgery or whatever it might, might be for them. So I'll end with those thoughts. I did want to talk a little bit about what to expect from season two. This will be the final episode of this season. So Mike, go ahead, jump in. What are some things that you look forward to in season two? And uh, we'll kind of wrap up here.
1: Yeah. So season two, we're going to be talking a little bit more uh, about kind of specific regions, potentially some specific diagnoses uh, and discussing kind of our treatment paradigms behind those. Uh, a little bit of research, a little bit of clinical experience, a little bit of theory, um, but just kind of honing in a little bit more on on some specific diagnoses and treatment strategies.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting season just because I feel like this first season we really tried to set up how we view practice in general, what kind of ideas and what paradigms we use to make decisions. But I think next season we're going to jump more into specific regions, specific joints and kind of discuss more what specific research that we view as being almost a cornerstone of our practice that really guides what we do and why we do it. And I think it'll be interesting just to build a solid foundation, a solid understanding of of our approaches for each specific joint. We can talk about specific patient cases and specific articles that we use in practice regularly. Um, So it'll be a little bit different pace, a little bit different topics for season two. But we'll definitely get into more detail in regards to our treatment approaches. All right. Any final thoughts, Mike?
1: Uh, No, I think I think we touched on a lot of a lot of good points. I mean, our, our role within the healthcare field is going to continue to evolve. How it evolves is going to probably depend a lot on what our future payment systems look like if we do ever move to a true single payer healthcare system. I think it's going to be I think that that'll probably be a challenging system for us to figure out our our, our role completely cuz I don't see our reimbursement rates increasing at that point. Uh so that 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 that'll be that'll be probably the toughest situation for us to navigate. Um but right now with all the different, you know, insurance providers and things like that, we have a lot of Different regulations for all, all the different providers, and, and and that and that adds its own its own layer of difficulty. So uh, I think right now we just keep advocating for ourselves the best way that we can. Uh, you know, stay stay educated and you know, kind of knowledgeable on, on what's going on at the state and federal level with the APTA or whatever your state state organization is. Keep chugging along and and keep doing right by your patients. And stay involved, stay educated about what's going on with the field, and that's going to be our, our best way to, uh, you know, provide the best product for our patients moving forward, and maybe eventually get paid a little bit more.
0: I want to thank everyone for listening to the first season. If you made it this far, we didn't completely put you to sleep, so we uh, definitely appreciate your support. And if you're enjoying the content, please go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review help us build the brand get the get our voice out there so that we can really create positive change within our profession and help improve the quality of care get some important discussions out there and we look forward to season 2 we think it's going to be really interesting really fun to just delve deeper into our personal practice and and talk a little bit about the research that we that we utilize regularly thanks everyone have a great day
1: thanks guys thanks for a great season 1